Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development with the people that make it happen. Today's episode is brought to you by TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. Know when errors hit your website with the context to find and fix bugs fast with TrackJS. Start your free trial today at trackjs.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Script and Style Show. I'm Todd Gardner from TrackJS JavaScript Air Monitoring and my co-host, David Walsh, creator of the popular blog, davidwalsh.name. How's it going today, David? I'm great. How are you? You're just back from where? Amsterdam? Amsterdam. I was out uh, just outside of Amsterdam last week for Techorama. Uh, which was a good time had by all. Plus, you know, hanging out. You know, Europe is awesome. Like the the patios that are just hanging out around the square, and you just sit down and get a delicious beer, and you just watch the world go by. It is amazing. I love that. So you've been all around Europe. Where does Amsterdam rank in your experience? Mm. In big city experiences around Europe. All right, I would say. Probably number two behind London. I think I like London more than Amsterdam, but Amsterdam is pretty great. London's, London's outstanding. London. But you're not even a soccer fan, so what's the? Well, you Why don't do I have to be a, a soccer right, fan? That's a good point. Good point. London's got lots to offer. There's okay. lots of stuff to. It's not about soccer. It's all about. Anyway, while well, well, I was gone, you wrote. Well, I'm glad actually you caught you called it by its proper name of soccer. Not that. Oh, we're gonna start that Football. fight. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> Foosball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sports ball. But while I was gone, you were writing a very provocative post, uh, an interview with an engineer at Pornhub. Um, I wouldn't call it provocative, but it was very interesting, right? Like it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time because everybody has their opinions on the subject matter. But what no one can really deny is the fact that adult sites have pushed the web forward in so many ways, um, whether it's performance, um, API usage. I don't know if you saw the article a couple of years back where Pornhub was getting around uh, ad blockers by piping the ads through WebSockets. So it's like the cleverness, the ingenuity. Um, and so I got to talk to them a lot about the tech Unfortunately, there were specifics that they uh, either couldn't or didn't want to answer because of how competitive that you know industry is. Um, but I also wanted to know what was life like working at a site like that because you know w when you meet your your uh, son's friend's parents at school, um, it's a little bit different when they ask, "So, what do you work on?" You know, it, it, it could be a little, to use your word, yeah. like a provocative that way. Um, well, like uh, I was at a, uh, a conference in Montreal where, where they're based out of. Right. And uh, there was a bunch of their engineers at the conference. And it's not weird at all to them. Like they rolled into the conference party wearing Pornhub engineering shirts. And you talk to them and there was nothing like weird about it. It's like... Yeah, it was it was actually super corporate almost. Like it was more corporate than I would have expected them to be for a tech company. Uh, and they were just, yeah, we're the largest video distribution platform in the world. I'm like, what? I'm like, yeah, way bigger. 
<laughs> right, and and that, like that's that's why it's interesting. That's why I didn't just want to know about the tech. I wanted to know about the culture. And so there's some um, interesting, surprising answers in the interview, um, and I think people should go check it out because, um, yeah, it was. But it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, let's move on to our main topic today. We have a guest again, don't we? We do. We have a big guest from all the way back in like the first JavaScript framework days up into doing some really amazing work now. We have uh, jQuery evangelist, Florida evangelist, and Microsoft security engineer, Ray Bango. How's it going, Ray? Hey, how you doing, guys? I wouldn't call myself a Florida evangelist. I will say that it's a nice sunny day today, which is pretty amazing, so. That sounds More like than, evangelism to me. Yeah. That's true, yeah, it does, yeah. <laughs> Looking at the cloudy, sleety skies of the northern Midwest, I would say that's evangelism. Yeah, that's the frozen tundra for me. It's probably, yeah, no, pass. <laughs> Weather aside, um, so one thing that we like to do, Ray, when we have guests join us is tell us their origin stories. How did you, um, how did you break into the tech industry? What made you love the open web, which I know you do? Um, how did that all come about for you? Well, it's interesting because I remember specifically you calling me old in many on many occasions, David. And I, then it makes me realize, damn, I started in 1989, so I'm pretty old. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, I, I, you know, when I when I was a kid, the Atari 2600 was the game console that everybody was raving about at that time. And so I remember playing in, and I was, I was as much as I loved the games, I was fascinated by how they built the games. And I always said, man, one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to go work as a game developer for Atari. And so I knew I had to get into computers in some fashion, and that's kind of how I segued into that. The interesting thing is between that time and the time that I actually took my first computer science course, I had decided that I was going to be a major league baseball player, a, car, a comic strip artist, an attorney, a stockbroker, and an accountant. <laughs> so all those things happened. And then I ended up in uh, CIS because I got my first uh, PC, which is a Tandy 1000TX, and, and I fell in love with it. And I started uh, programming in a DOS-based language called Clipper, which was a derivative of DBase. And so the, the cool thing is you can take DBase language and compile it and make actual executables. And that's how I kind of learned programming. And of course, having the CIS courses helped out and stuff like that. And uh, But yes, I started programming professionally in 1989 and went from there and uh, did DOS-based development, then transitioned over into Windows development using a tool called Power Builder. And that was more of the client-server um, methodology. So we're talking, oh, sorry, my family just walked in. So you'll probably hear my son getting very excited right now. Sure. Uh, but that that was primarily like uh, we're talking like high-end relational database systems such as Sybase and Informix and Ingress and stuff like that. Uh, when the web hit, uh, I really honestly have to say when the internet first came out, it wasn't something that was on my radar. Um, it was just you know, a fad. I, I I was on CompuServe. <laughs> I thought, why? What's this internet thing? You know? Uh, and and eventually, then it started taking off and. Uh, so I jumped on that bandwagon. I caught it, I caught the wave probably around 19, I think 1998, 1999. And when I started looking at ways to start building out websites, the of course the first thing I went through was ASP. I mean that was the what I think a lot of people 
uh, started using. But a friend of mine really quickly hooked me into something called Cold Fusion. And Cold Fusion was just like so, it, it was just like so so right for me because mm-hmm. you could incorporate your SQL right into your CF query commands and you had the CF output and everything just seemed very logical. And, and I was able to incorporate a lot of the things that I had done in client server development into the web. And so it was interesting, but it was interesting also to see the wild, wild west nature of web development where I had come from a traditional waterfall approach and you do a discovery phase and then you build out your data model and then you, you know, you build out the code and you run it through QA testing iteratively and uh, getting in there and just people just saying, no, no, just build something out and put it up. I was like, what? And I just wasn't, (laughs) it was something that was very foreign to me, but uh, you know, eventually you just adapt to it. And I kept cracking on that. So I did that for quite a bit of time. And then around 2005, uh, I kept hearing the term Ajax and Ajax and Ajax. And one of the things that I, I, I try to try to do is keep track of trends so that I can adjust my career uh, to stay on top of the trends. Obviously, I'd like to be gamefully employed, and that's always a good thing to do. So I kept hearing Ajax, Ajax. I said, all right. I went out and bought a book on Ajax. And lo and behold, what was Ajax? <laughs> it was JavaScript. <laughs> it was basically JavaScript. I'm like, Oh, this is not some magical technology. This is just basically JavaScript. And so uh, JavaScript had always been viewed in the industry as something like uh, it, it's it's like a little throwaway language, you know, type of thing. And it's not really useful. That's but what I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, clearly. Um, and then XHR came around, and, and that really helped formalize a lot of this stuff. But, you know, still, uh, understanding the DOM and understanding the nuances of J- the JavaScript li- language, uh, it was challenging. And, you know, credit to the folks who uh, built some of the first frameworks out there, like OpenRico and MokiKit, and, of course, the Dojo team, who they were pioneers in their own right. I mean, they were, I think, well ahead of their time. Uh, when I started looking at frameworks that could help me build out applications in some fashion and, and normalize things, I I immediately kind of gravitated towards, believe it or not, uh, open uh, it was it was OpenRico, but then OpenRico was basically being kind of end of life. So then I went to Dojo, and I remember going onto the Dojo. I think it was their support forums or support news group or whatever it was, and asking a question like, hey, do you guys have documentation on this so I can use it? And they go, no, yeah. the documentation's in the source code. And I'm like, yeah, I don't have time for that. <laughs> so, and um, back then, you know, there was MoviFX and MoviFX was great, but it was great more for animations and stuff, and stuff. It really, really didn't have like the selector engines and things like that that you needed to really build out something uh, comprehensive. And I, I looked at Prototype and, and it came down to really Prototype and jQuery. And jQuery was picking up a lot of steam uh, I really took a loving to jQuery. I loved the terseness of it. I loved how easy it was to kind of scaffold something up really quickly. The, I think the first time that I I, uh, I used the Ajax functionality and dropped some dynamic uh, text into a DOM element, I was like, "Oh my God, fire!" You know, it was like <laughs> it was it was a really cool thing to see. And uh, jQuery just I, I fell in love with it. Uh, Prototype was really the top dog at that point from just a pure DOM manipulation type of framework. But jQuery, I, I just saw so much potential in jQuery. And then the community was great. 
John was such a great curator of the community and he had built out really good documentation. And the more I got entrenched in it, uh, and the more people I met, like Carl Swedberg and Richard Wirth and uh, Jorn Zafer and all these folks, the more I, I, I began to become part of that community. Eventually, John wanted to build out a team and uh, I think he had seen a lot of the work that I was doing out there advocating for jQuery, reaching out to people and helping them uh, try to be successful with, with the, the library despite you know there not being a formalized team. And he, he, he said, look, I want to build out a team. Would you like to head up our developer outreach? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And so that's how I became one of the original members of the, uh, the jQuery team. And, and, and for those who don't know, John Rezig is who you're talking about. That's correct. Yep. Sorry, I should have said John no, Rezig. No, no problem. Yeah, I, I make the assumption everybody knows John nowadays, you know, so. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, was, John really was a great leader in that sense. He he loved open source. It was my, I'm going to say it was really my first exposure to open source, um, especially from a project perspective. And it was interesting because I had never been in a world where you share code so freely and so openly and seeing all this code come around and it was it was fun. It was fun, and and of course you had other frameworks out there and libraries that were fantastic. I mean, you had uh, Dojo was continued to evolve. You had ExtJS, which came on the scene like you know like a like a bulldozer. They were great. Uh, MooTools, which you know I, I know that I I bust on you for <laughs> MooTools quite a bit. Uh, MooTools and jQuery obviously had some tension there, but all the all these libraries and frameworks. Are, I really believe are what helped to make JavaScript more mature. I think it helped to legitima legitimize JavaScript as a viable language for not just sprinkling pixie dust on web pages, but actually building out comprehensive uh, interactions and building web apps. And that's why now you see tools like React.js and Vue.js. And that's yeah, that's the future. But all that has foundations in the stuff that was done by John Rezig and Alex Russell and Dylan Sheeman and all these people, and you know that they were the ones who paved the way. Totally. We have to back up for a second though, because I have to thank Ray for something. Um, okay. So when I I sort of had the same path as Ray into open source, where I fell in love with MooTools instead of jQuery. Um, and that eventually helped me onto the, and obviously through my blog, helped me to become a member of the MooTools team. But Jay, uh, Jay, Ray, there's too many JavaScripts going on. Ray actually unlocked a big key in my life in that I was at a job in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, my first job in web, which I was really, I had grown unhappy with. And so it was actually Ray the jQuery guy who introduced me, the MooTools guy, <laughs> to Dylan, the Dojo yeah. guy, which is how I got to SitePen and how I got into remote development. So I owe Ray a huge debt of gratitude in my life. I know I've Aww. thanked you. I know I've thanked you on Twitter, which means everything, right? Um, but I have to thank you face to face um, because Aww. that was was huge in my life. Um, well, you, like, you know you. I thought you were great, and uh, I felt like uh, you'd be an asset to to SitePen, and I felt SitePen was was a great place for you to go and actually to learn because, you know, despite having great skills, one thing is being kind of like a an island of one. But now, when you're part of a team with some really really amazing people, 
that's a whole different world because now you're you're now you're playing with people who are better than you. And and as as professionals, I think we always gravitate to people who are better than us because that's how we learn and that's how we improve and how we evolve and and, and evolve. And then that's that's Dylan. Dylan was that person for you to learn and evolve from and and develop new skills. And, and look, you got to work with Dojo, which again was far, it, it was far far and away um, the most comprehensive JavaScript framework at that time. Definitely, so, Dojo I mean, had Dojo had promises and deferreds yeah. like years and years before anybody mm -hmm. was talking about them um, in the main language. And as you said, yeah. I was both an asset and an ass at uh, SitePen. So that was that was a that was a fun bit of time. Um, so you had mentioned that that you joined the jQuery team through you know being a part of the community and John Resig um, sort of bringing you in. Um, I talked about how MooTools sort of elevated my career path. Um, how did being in the jQuery community and then a member of team elevate your career path? So, you know, when you, whenever you join a team, there's, it's kind of like a, it, I have to say it's, it's hit or miss. I mean, you can be a part of a team and you do it out of passion and nothing comes out of it because it just, the project doesn't flourish or whatever it is, but you're doing it out of passion. And that's kind of the way I felt about jQuery. I just loved jQuery. I loved being part of it. And if nothing ever came out of it, I didn't care. I was just wanted to be able to continue to use this great library. But sometimes these projects kind of explode and maybe they take on a life of their own and, uh, and, and shoot, look, jQuery is still used. And I don't know if it's still 80% of all uh, sites. I haven't checked in, in years, but at one point it was used by 80% of the internet. And that's, that's impressive in itself. Think about the, the scale of that. Think about the, the pervasiveness of that set of JavaScript code out there. And so when you're, one of those early people and you're out there and you're highly visible, it certainly opens up opportunities. It makes you a recognized name. Uh, it opens up opportunities at companies that typically might not have considered you, whether it's because they just haven't seen your work or you're a remote employee like I was. And so by saying that I was part of the jQuery project, it certainly opened doors. I can't deny that. And, you know, you look at um, when I went to work for Mozilla, John Resig was a key part of that. He, uh, he helped me get in the, my foot in the door and having the developer, I'm going to call it developer evangelism because that's what it was back then. We didn't have developer advocacy. Um, the, it, it certainly helped me get my foot in the door and then get an interview to become a community manager. And then even after Mozilla, the interesting thing is that uh, John, again, was able to, when I wanted to move into Microsoft, he is the one who found that opportunity with Scott Hanselman. And it was like really good timing because uh, they wanted to start talking more about um, HTML5, CSS3, and JavaScript. And they needed somebody who could write about it, who had the credibility in the industry. And at that point, being part of the jQuery team, I had that credibility. And so it worked out really nicely, and I transitioned into that. And then shortly after that, Microsoft announced that they were going to be bundling jQuery with Visual Studio. So all this was like a ver it's just like it was just teed up perfectly. I couldn't have asked for a better setup. Um, so yeah, it does. It, being part of an open source project where you have high visibility opens up doors. And and uh, if you look at anybody on the React project now, uh, or the Vue.js project, or even folks that were uh, I don't know, like Brian LaRue, a phone gap, you know, I mean, 
he had one of the most popular uh, JavaScript libraries out there. He could find a, a role anywhere he wants right now, pretty much. So yeah, it's it even you know even on you know uh, even on libraries that just they're not used pretty much at all, like MooTools, um, you know. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, look, I'm sure getting you- Getting a little I'm, hot I'm in the room right now, so I'm gonna- You know, I'm sure you could find a job too, you know? And oh, boy. So, oh, brutal. Uh, uh, so. Moo tools? Is that like a farmland contraption yeah, thing? What? Moo who? What? All right, uh, that's our show today, everybody. Uh, <laughs> no, so, so the last thing we'll talk on. But, but Valerio, I love you. You know, don't. Yes. We all love don't Valerio. Send a, yeah. <laughs> so the last thing I had I wanna, to do that. I, you know, uh, I had to course. do that. Well, I had to put the shirt on. I knew this was coming. Um, so, the last thing we'll touch on before we jump to your work at Microsoft, um, we. You touched on it a little bit in that these JavaScript frameworks, uh, they sort of changed the game, right? Because at the time, Internet Explorer 6 was um, not to take shots at Microsoft, but like it had gotten stale, right? The web wasn't pushing forward as much as it could it have been. Horrible. Yeah, it so horrible. Was we, we, can, we can sort of credit the JavaScript frameworks for mm -hmm. pushing the browsers to do better, right? Like all the functionality, like, bind just like function bind and all these things that weren't there we sort of pushed the browsers in that direction um yeah. what what else do you think either just for you personally or for the web um what did we do right and what did we do wrong do you think yeah because this was a huge huge pivotal time um like one of the things that i think that we did right out of that is we we all started out very competitive, right? And you touched on MooTools and jQuery uh, having a little bit of of uh, tension in those days. But I think out of it, we started to understand um, as we matured that it isn't so much about us versus you. It's we're sort of on the same team trying to push the web forward, right? Um, and we learned to be good to each other as open source communities. Um, was there anything else that you can think of that that we either learned or we did right or 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 we did wrong that helped push open source and push JavaScript and frameworks to where we are today? Yeah. Uh, so I think one of the, one of the things that we did right was we introduced uh, formalized programming concepts into front end development. Uh, you know, and and. Everything from proper encapsulation of code uh, to implementing proper unit testing, CI, all that fun stuff. I think that was all important. I mean, that's uh, you look at traditional software development, non-web desktop based, and all that stuff has been in the industry for a long time. Uh, but a lot of that wasn't part of the the web when it first started, and it wasn't part of the early web at all. For sure, and so I think eventually seeing tools like Grunt and then of course capitalizing on CI, CD tools like Jenkins and stuff was was it was fantastic. It was great. I love like like look even Bower and the package management capabilities that it had. That was well you know well ahead of the the curve. So I loved the fact that we were trying to formalize a lot of the uh, the efforts around maintainability and scalability of code. The things that I think we didn't do that great on was um, overcomplicating software development. And I, I felt, I feel like to some extent, 
people felt the need to in, throw in all this stuff to build sites that really didn't need it. Uh, in many cases, you'd have just a plain old, I'm going to call it a brochure site that was leveraging all these different tools. And you're like, why do we, why do you need Amen, that? Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> you know, there's no need for all this stuff. I think, I, I think the, what ended up happening was so many of the key influencers in the industry had been promoting all this, you know, this uh, scaffolding that it was really good for, to some extent, but the problem was they didn't, they didn't articulate when is that scaffolding actually necessary versus something that's just nice to have. And then you even look at some of the tools that were built and the hard part was that a lot of the tools that were built for that scaffolding basically ended of, you know, came to end of life very quickly because things had evolved so quickly. So you get a project that was dependent on these tool, this tool set, and then guess what? That tool set basically died within a year or two, and then on a new set of tools came up. And then you had this, remember how we were talking about, you just mentioned competitiveness, right? It almost felt like everybody needed to come up with a new way of doing the same thing over and over because they didn't like this syntax or they didn't like this one feature or they, and instead of contributing into an established project that was doing really good and making it that much better, somebody would say, let me just build a whole new thing. And then that would be the tool du jour. And you'd have all these people running around and saying, oh yeah, this is the latest and greatest. If you're, and if it's just, if it's just some random developer that has an opinion, okay, that person has an opinion. But when you have somebody who's very influential with 10, 15, 20, 100,000 followers, and now they're saying this is the way of doing things, there's a, de there's a definitive impact on, uh, on, on the code base and how, I'm trying to figure out the right word for it, but how effective and productive developers can become. You know, after a while, it becomes it gets to the point of diminishing returns. You know, and you're wasting more time trying to learn the new tool instead of saying, "Okay, we have this established now, this established framework that we're going to capitalize, and we're actually going to build something cool." So I think it's it's a catch twenty two. It's and it's hard because everything was evolving so fast. So I can't blame a lot of people for like trying to make their input, put their input into building something cool. I just wish that some folks would have contributed more to existing projects and made them better instead of trying to build something brand new. That's a good lesson that we can learn when it comes to um, React view and you know everything else that's popping up. Um, yep. and, and that's going to be a never ending fight. But I'm glad yep. we had that trip down memory lane. Um, yeah. You said 2005 and now I feel very, very old because I was, I was very uh, young and uh, brilliant back them. Anyways, sure. transitioning to today. Um, today you're with Microsoft. And today, nine years actually. I just, I just celebrated nine years uh, like a couple of weeks ago. Holy cow. And celebrated yeah, right. that record stock price while you were at it. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you mentioned that you got there as a community manager, but you're doing something very different today, right? That's right. And yep, that is? So, when I got hired at Microsoft, I went in to focus on uh, web development technologies. And eventually, uh, it, it's interesting because I eventually became the Internet Explorer evangelist. Um, when I moved into that role, they issued me my um, my obligatory flame retardant suit. 
I was, you know, that way I can, you know, go and give presentations and get blasted by everybody. But, uh, you know, and then uh, continue down the path of being the developer advocate for Edge and web standards and and um, eventually took over the whole entire ecosystem team for the Edge browser. But uh, around 2017, I got the, I started looking for a new message. And so if you remember, if you think about what everybody talks about in the web development community, or let me not say everybody, a lot of people talk about is what web standards. And if you work for a browser maker, um, that's what you're gonna, you're gonna talk primarily about that. You're gonna talk about web standards and new features that are coming out and oh, Kumbaya, web, blah, blah, blah. Makes sense. I wanted to take a different tact. I I really wanted to look for a message around uh, web security. And the reason was because I felt, I saw an escalating number of attacks that were focusing on web properties. And I didn't see anybody talking about that. You go to conferences and nobody's talking about web security. And I'm like, okay, this is something strange. What, uh, you know, short of, I think it was Mike West from Google who does a, a very good job of talking about security. And then some, some folks here and there, but for the most part, the conversation has always revolved around development. And that makes a lot of sense, but we were missing this piece. And so I said, all right, I'm gonna take up the mantle of uh, application security and focusing on web app security specifically. And how do, we, how do we protect sites against this type of stuff? And I figured that would fall nicely within the context of the browser, but also web development. And so I started looking, at, uh, looking into that, getting deeper into trying to figure out more about the specifics of web app security. I started talking to the folks at Sneak, uh, who they do static analysis of code bases, uh, just learning more about the industry. And uh, in fact, I put out a message on Twitter that says, I'd like to go to DEF CON, but I'm scared, uh, I don't wanna use the word, but I'm scared poopless to go to DEF CON. Yeah. And, uh, and it was amazing because so many people just said, no, come on over to DEF CON, it's great, you're gonna love it. Uh, the community is very welcoming and, and yeah, I decided I was gonna go to DEF CON. Um, I spoke to a CVP in our cybersecurity solutions group, and um, I told her I, I was interested in this and I wanted to get more experience. And she said, well, why don't you come over to Black Hat and you can check it out. So I was figured, all right, perfect. I go to Black Hat and then I'll go to DEF CON, it'll be great. And then shortly after that, around the May timeframe of that year, uh, WannaCry hit. And WannaCry was, you know, before it was like, all right, this is interesting, I'll learn more about application security, this is cool, I'll add that to some narratives I'm gonna talk about, but then WannaCry hit, and that one actually, uh, that one was hit me a little bit deeper because I started seeing patients being turned away for chemotherapy. Uh, this was at the National Healthcare System in the UK, and uh, they were being turned away for dialysis treatment, and so I started thinking, what if this was my family? And so I said, let me, let me take that experience that I have in this industry and try to figure out how can I help protect people from things like WannaCry. So I went down the path uh, for the, for about two years of getting more entrenched with information security. And the CVP, I kind of pitched to her an idea of saying, of, of becoming a security advocate. I felt there was a gap in the security, in our involvement with the security community where we were having really great conversations at the C-level, but we could do better at having conversations with the security practitioners and the researchers uh, folks who roll up their sleeves and actually get their hands dirty. And she liked the idea. So I gave her 20% of my time and she funded me to go to some events, get some training. Uh, she, she told me, go do these things and let's see how you, how you do. 
And for, yeah, for almost two years, that's what I did. And so in December of last year, she said, I have an open head. I'd like to start a security advocacy program. I'd like you to be part of that. Do you want it? You want in? And so I joined Microsoft's Cybersecurity Solutions Group. And uh, I start, I officially started in January. Cool. And so I guess as 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 the advocate, what do you what is your day to day role? I guess what are the types of things that you do in that role? Yeah, sure. So it's it's to some extent it's similar to to the stuff that I was doing when I was a, an advocate for uh, web development, except focused more with security researchers. Uh, I, t I tend to have uh, conversations with these uh, this the security community, try to figure out what are some of the things that are important to them. What are the tools that they're using? What are the new techniques that they see uh, are helpful to either uh, either offensive security, which is important for cybersecurity, actually te proactively testing out systems, or some of the techniques that they're using to defend against attackers. And I try to bring that feedback into our product team to try to change, uh, try to affect the way we build our products. So uh, if you're, if if a if a defender says, hey, listen, you know, um, you know, Microsoft Defender ATP is missing this key feature that would really help me block X type of attacks. That's important to me. I want to know about that. And the thing is that in many cases, unless you're boots on the ground and actually having these real world conversations with them. You may not get that feedback if you're if you're simply talking to the directors or the C level. Most of the time, they're going to be very uh, abstracted from the actual implementation details, and we want to have those conversations with the people who are toiling over the tooling every single day that actually have to defend the networks and uh, look at telemetry, look at logs, look at the attacks in action, and try to prevent that. And so, I also work with our our incident response team. So I can understand a little bit more about the things that they're seeing when they work with our customers on incidents, whether it's a data breach, whether it's a compromise, because that's also important for me to be able to share back with security researchers. And then, of course, I'm also uh, going through my training because I am fairly new to security. Uh, as in, in, I think, 10 months, which is what I've been on the job now, uh, it's not enough to, to be a security pro like some of these people out here that are, that are that are amazing it's the same concept of like you takes you 10 years to be an expert in something right right um so so not 10 months 10 years right and so i'm i'm drinking from the fire hose right now uh, i've taken some really really involved courses uh it's interesting because i feel like i've taken i've actually i grokked the things that i'm learning in the course it's not like it's over my head and that software development experience that i have i believe helps uh helps to understand that so if you're talking about, I don't know, buffer overflows or cross-site scripting or uh, some other complex attack, a lot of times I understand what's happening. I may not know how to do it, but that's something I can learn. I feel like I can understand the concepts. So in your time doing that, have you seen anything that, that we as web developers are doing wrong? Um, like we've known about XSS for a long time, right? And mm -hmm. SQL injection, all the things that we can shoot ourselves in the foot with. Um, is there is there a tip or any tips you can share about what maybe we're doing wrong these days? Yeah, sure. So the first thing I'll say is that most developers don't know about um, the Open Web Application Standards Project, OWASP. And if you don't, I mean, you should. It's it, It's 
it's an open source project. Basically, it's a nonprofit foundation, and they provide you with a ton of resources and information um, about uh, like the top 10 attacks on websites. And so we talk about SQL injections, for example, great example, and that's still in the top 10, 17 years on or something like that, wow. 17 years on. Yeah, it's it continues on to be in the top 10 year after year. And so I would say that the fact that something like that where it's, there's documented examples of how to properly sanitize your inputs still gets by, shows that there's a lack of understanding on application security. Uh, but a lot of that, I can't blame the developers. I mean, if you really think about it, we there there's time constraints. I hate to say it, everybody has time constraints. I A lot of people tend to point the fingers at, at developers or end users, but the bottom line is, is that I think it's a, it's, it's a res dual responsibility. I think as the professional developers, there is a responsibility for you to stay on top of security best practices. But I think there's also a responsibility for your leadership to invest in, in your training so that you have actual time to, to learn the techniques that are important. It, it's really challenging to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus for eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours at work and on building this application. And then what time do you have left over to actually learn security? Are you going to go home and have to do it? Is that actually fair from a, a work-life balance? No, I think there should be uh, time allocated for for software developers to learn these techniques. Um, and, and I just think some of these things, some of the, the low-hanging fruit that we can we can do are things like making sure that we capitalize on tools like Sneak. You know, Sneak is out there, or White Source, or Veracode, or uh, synopsis black duck a lot of those tools yeah they might be a little bit pricey but they help you kind of get a sanity check on whether your code is secure or not They're i feel do... terrible because i've not heard of any of those todd have you heard of any of those yeah. oh you're I, I, yep sorry i've heard of sneak i've used sneak it it i mean it is helpful yeah. uh it does price itself out like you're either an enterprise developer and you're using those or you're not using those because they like price themselves out pretty quick it's hard it's i can't say that it's inexpensive i think it's an investment that uh companies should make uh and they should just incorporate it into their ci cd it just makes life so much easier it's not going to catch everything that's not the point of it the point is you're going to try to catch the majority of these issues that uh, that are common mistakes. That's what you want to kind of try to catch because things evolve all the time. And I have to tell you that looking at some of the web application pen testers out there, they're really smart. They, they're incredibly talented and they, and they know how to find uh, the syntax that will cause a SQL injection. They know how to cause that, that cross-site scripting. They understand cores and the implications of, not, of it not, probably not being set up. So those are things that unless you have a lot of training and you dedicate time to actually understanding it, it's hard. So one of the things, for example, at Microsoft that my managers asked me to look at is the uh, secure uh, software development lifecycle and understanding how to write secure code and how to talk with customers about writing secure code. And then also how, to, how does secure DevOps come into the conversation? So all those things are things that I'm learning now and hopefully I can help by help the community out by sharing articles about that. I'm, I can't say that I'm an expert in it, but I'm gonna work hard to, to learn it. And I think yeah, there's plenty of content out there, uh, but ultimately it's a dual responsibility. That's, that's the way I look at it.
Yeah, you, you mentioned a really good point. I mean, when I went to school, um, it was it was this millennium, by the way. Um, <laughs> like there wasn't a you did there was no security class you go to, right? It's sort of like learning regular expressions. There's no class for it. They don't spend time on it, but you right. like you need to learn it. That's one thing. Yeah. The second thing is, you know, we're sort of talking about this at a sort of from a big business perspective. But if you're a small agency, you can't bill for security. You know, you can't tell your client, well, we're charging you this much or this much of the budget is going towards security. Um, it would be like telling them this much of the money went toward Q&A. Like it's just supposed to work. It's just supposed to be secure. You're supposed to know how to do this, right? And so it's really hard to, I guess, sell that from that perspective. Um, but right. security, it, security is a really scary thing, right? Especially when it comes uh -huh. to open source, because, um, you know, what percentage of the web uses open SSL? And if something gets into open SSL that shouldn't be there, you're in trouble. Um, yeah. and, or even that NPM package not that long ago that had the crypto miner built into it. Yeah, so supply chain attacks are very prevalent and bad actors are constantly looking for those opportunities. And so, I, you know, going back to the agency con comment, I, I agree. It's hard for an agency, especially a small agency who whose billable time is so important just to be able to pay the bills on a regular basis. I, security shouldn't be a, a feature that you're throwing in. It should just be part of the, the package, period. Uh, that's And that's where I'm saying that at some point, uh, even an agency has to take time to say, let me let me go learn what security means and if it's a week of non-billable time maybe that's what they have to do maybe they have to bite the bullet and and plan for that accordingly and say i'm going to go like there's a company called secure ideas which is in florida and they they actually teach web application uh like secure code techniques go to a place like that or go online and maybe take a course on lynda.com or a plural site um, Troy Hunt does a great series on web application testing and secure code writing on Pluralsight. So there's resources out there. It's not like you you have to, it's not like you have to just kind of stop all development and just not, not do it. You, you, there's resources that you can, you can uh, capitalize that will teach you this stuff. And I think it's important for everybody to take some time but most importantly, I don't think anybody should be forced to take time, um, their personal time to do this. If they want to, that's great. I think every employer should allocate time to get their team to a state where they feel that level of confidence that they're gonna build secure code. And also not penalize somebody if a mistake happens because ultimately, what are we? We're all humans and we're gonna make mistakes. Regarding open source, uh, you, you know, that's it's hard because you know, unless you have a very mature open source project where code is truly scrutinized and 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 vetted, you know, you can't you you're not going to know if you've had a supply chain attack. And so the uh, depending just simply installing npm packages without vetting the stuff, you're you're asking for trouble. That's the bottom line. The reason Node Source has vetted uh, vetted npm packages is precisely because enterprise customers don't want to go to NPM and just simply install blindly. You can't because all you need is th like that author who said, hey, if you look at what that author did, 
uh, I don't blame the original author. He, I think he was trying to be responsible and transition his project over to somebody, but he turned it over to somebody who was a bad actor. And in fact, that bad actor, what they did was they injected the crypto mining co code into one specific version so that everybody would update and then reverted the code. So you, unless you dug mm. deeper into it, you would never find it. Those things happen. You know, Notpedia, which is the uh, which was the Ukrainian the ransomware that hit the the ransomware that hit Ukraine, um, that was a supply chain attack. Things like that are really challenging to find because all you need is a bad actor to inject some code, and unless you have really good auditing processes to see what the changes are, and that's part of your CI and CD, and you can see changes that are coming across, how do you detect that? How do you know? It's hard. You know, whether you're whether you're working on, you know, and look, shoot, PyPy had one and RubyGems had one and anything, any any package management utility, unless they have a mature project that is constantly checking these things out and has good maintainers. You never know. And yet that's the the web runs on all of those. Right. That's right. That's scary. That's Todd, right. you and I talk about that all the time. Uh, we talked about how people how people on the web including ourselves from time to time just npm install is just so incredibly easy mm -hmm. um there's you the, yeah there's this fallacy that that open source is free and uh, it's it's not i mean there's costs being paid all around and a lot of times when you just npm install whatever to solve my problem you're just taking a risk you're like, you have no idea who ran that project, what they did with it, what's in the source code, where it's going to become, if it's still going to be around next year. Like, you have no idea. But mm -hmm. to you, free was more important than good. And so yeah. as long as you know that you just made that choice, that you prioritized cost over quality, yeah. good on you. You know, the, the number of developers that tell me, oh, I use a Mac because it's more secure, it's only as secure as what you install on it. It's not, it's not a, it, it, at that point, it doesn't become whether Windows or Mac OS or Linux is more secure. It's only as secure as the stuff that you actually let run on that computer. That's, that's the bottom line. And so, yeah, if you install Package Manager, look, you never know. I, I run Brew on my Mac. How do I know Homebrew one day doesn't get a package that's malicious installed yeah. in there? Yeah. You know? I, I, I didn't vet the Homebrew source code. Yeah. I don't know what's in it. Exactly. Maybe Homebrew installed a keylogger on all of these computers and has just been doing it. Yeah. How would you know? Yeah. So it happens. So uh, I, I think it's important for developers to to understand the security implications of some of the things that they use. I also think it's important for them to get some training on writing secure code. The fact that the fact that SQL injection is still so prevalent, that's the one that astonishes me the most. I mean, some of the other things, you know, if you have a cross-site scripting attack, yeah, I okay, it's hard. Yeah, because those things sometimes are fairly easy to kind of do it, it, because attackers are smart. They're, they they do novel tricks with everything from, you know, Unicode characters. They, they have something called Punicode, which makes it look like you're clicking on a link that uh, with real letters and it's actually fake Cyrillic letters. And, you know, they, they'll do that. But something like SQL injection at this point, I'm, I, I try to sit there and say, why would a developer, what was... What was the cause of that input not being sanitized? The, what, what caused that? And so I don't know if that's lack of experience. I don't know if it's lack of time and oversight. That's the things that kind of worry me more. 
Todd, you said you, you said I, I, I had a question that I wanted to run by you. It was an idea that occurred to me about a week ago. And I was on this site and uh, I was signing up for a service that I wanted to try out. And it uh, there was like a, a sign in with Facebook, sign in with Google, sign in with Twitter, sign in with, you know, GitHub, you know, mm -hmm. th those really common, right? Yeah. Sign in with a with an, another carrier. And I clicked on one of those links and it just says, all right, tell me who you are on Google. And I typed in who I was on Google and my password and everything and clicked on. And then I thought, you know what? How do I know that was Google? How do I know that this service that I just landed on didn't just put a bunch of those icons and use it to like harvest my Google user ID and har harvest my Twitter user ID? And, and thinking back, like I have no idea that that was true. Have, have you seen any real life uh, situations where people are phishing for these major passwords using that that vector? Oh yeah, there's um, there's I, I forgot I lost the article. I actually just read it yesterday, but there was a there's a framework that just got released by a security researcher. And just so you know, security researchers will release exploit code um, in the name of like defense because they if you if you're able to come up with a novel approach for conducting an attack and you share that with the defensive community it helps them kind of protect against it it's not a bad thing um obviously you you hope the defensive community will say let me embrace this and add you know some mitigations uh sometimes they do sometimes they don't but then what happens is bad actors will surely embrace it and give it a shot and so he came up with this framework that for all intents, basically does a reverse proxy and actually mimics a website to steal your two, your your multi-factor uh, authentication. And I haven't used it, but I was reading about it, and it was actually pretty impressive. The fact that they the it was it's basically a man in the middle. And so, can somebody steal it? Yeah, absolutely. Even your two FA, um, it's. Not likely. Most of the time, you're not. I can't say. Well, I don't want to say that. It's, it's, it's hard to say how pervasive that something like that would be because mm -hmm. I can't imagine that it's that trivial to do. Because I haven't used it. I haven't seen it in action, so I can't tell you how trivial it is. The more trivial it is to set up, the more pervasive you're going to see things. Mm -hmm. And then the harder to set up, that's where you're going to have very specific, tailored attacks, because there's an investment that has to be made. And so they have to get information very quickly and get out. And so I think when you, when you click on something that says, Hey, you know, sign in with Twitter or sign in with Google, or whatever, you want to make sure that you're being redirected to actually the actual property. If you're on a site and then you click on it and then all of a sudden you just get something that says joeschmo.com and put in your Google account. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. But like, I, but in, in, Today, with like uh, Unicode support in URLs, mm -hmm. how do you know that you're on Google.com? How do you know that you're on Twitter.com and not like a yeah. very cleverly put together domain? The the browsers have actually worked really hard to try to put in mitigations for that. It's not always going to be 100%, but I believe uh, I believe Firefox. Chrome and and the Edge browser have mitigations that will actually help you figure out whether that is an actual Punicode. It's called Punicode, basically, um, URL. It, it, and, and yeah, you want to be careful with that. 
certainly want to be careful of that. Mm. I haven't, I don't believe I've ever run across it. I had, I probably have, and I didn't even see it, <laughs> you know? Um, Can you trust the SSL certificate in that case, do you think? Uh, you, you should be able to, if you click on it and you expand it out, I, I don't think Google's using less, let's encrypt. So if you see a, Right. You know, the, the certificate authority being let's encrypt, I can pretty much tell you that neither Microsoft, Mozilla, or Google are using that. So uh, you probably want to be dubious of that one. Uh, so that's that's certainly a good way of doing it. Uh, Paul Walsh, who run, who's the CEO of Metacert, one of the things that he's a big advocate of is visual indicators. And so his company, uh, he's aggregated a ton of malware sites, and he has a visual indicator that his company actually sells to, uh, to corporations and it helps them make sure that the links that they're clicking on are legitimate, but also that they, uh, they're they not malware. So it's, think of it as like an addition to what safe browsing is or smart screen or things like that. Uh, so while before we had the EV, the extended validation where you saw that big green bar and it said, hey, this is google.com, for example. Um, you know, Microsoft has made it, uh, 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 not Microsoft, Google basically made a very strong push to get rid of that because they felt that it, it was giving a false sense of security to the internet. And, and to some extent it was, uh, especially with Let's Encrypt now. It, it's too easy for people to look at a lock and assume that a lock is trust. And a lock is not trust. A lock is simply saying, all right, you have an encrypted page, but do you actually know that that is a that is a a safe site to participate in. Does it have your reputation? You don't know. Yeah. And malware malware authors are using Let's Encrypt quite a bit because it's free free certs. There's no validation to it, so they'll they'll use it on a f f uh, phishing landing pages. They'll also, interesting enough, use uh, uh, Reputable cloud providers, whether it's GCP, you know, Google Cloud Platform, or AWS, or Azure, to host these these uh, phishing pages. Because are you going to block whole swaths of cloud-based providers? No. So they'll actually capitalize on that, and they'll have a little lock, and it'll look legitimate. And it, it, it's easy to fool users nowadays because before it, it took some work. You had to come up with a very legitimate-looking page, but now because we've focused so much on this trust where the icon demonstrates trust, now it's a, it's, it's a lot easier, in my opinion, to, to fool users into clicking on a page or going into a, a phishing link. It's, and it's a hard problem to solve. Uh, some of these pages are really, really convincing. They are really convincing to the point where a, a, techie, a tech savvy user could fall for a phishing page easily, easily. So as we as we come up upon time here, um, I'm really interested in learning um, learning more about security and how I can get better. Um, what are some of the you've mentioned a couple of the softwares and a couple of the websites? Um, like, what are some resources that myself and our audience can go to to um, sort of slide into a more security-minded, uh, not not even necessarily job, but just become more security-minded? Yeah, I, the, the first one I would tell you is go to OWASP. Um, and I believe it's OWASP.org, O-W-A-S-P.org. And um, that's, <laughs> that has a wealth 
of information there that you can capitalize on. Uh, it's going to teach you everything from how to test your systems out, uh, what are best practices for sanitizing input, how do you prevent cross-site scripting, and if you want to take it deeper and you say, I want to become a security champion and I want to learn more about how do I actually probe my application for security vulnerabilities, well, then they have free projects there that you can actually set up in a virtual machine. Like uh, they have, um, what's it called? Um, oh my God, JuShop. And JuShop is an Angular and Node.js based application that you spin up. And it has a ton of security vulnerabilities in there. And you can actually decide how hard uh, of a how hard of a level you want in order to test it out. And then you have things like uh, DVWA, like Damn Vulnerable Web Application, which again, you can run in a VM. And you can go in there and probe it out. You can see what, what are the things that I find. And that by, by actually probing these applications and understanding how these, um, these, these actual vulnerabilities appear, it helps you better your code. So I would say go to OWASP and look at the tools there. Install something like um, like Zap. Uh, uh, I think that's what it's called. Here, let me let me go there real quick. Bear with me one second, because now you put me on the spot, of course. I'm well. Hey, let's <laughs> take revenge for all that uh, Moo tools bashing <laughs> mid show. Yeah. So uh, let's see where where's Zap. Yeah, the yeah, that's what it is. So the OWASP Z Attack Proxy Project. So if you if you've ever used a tool like Fiddler, um, OWASP Zap is kind of like that, except it actually lets you probe a little bit deeper into some of the requests that go across, and you can manipulate the request. And uh, Fiddler will let you do the same exact thing. Uh, so if if you're on a Mac, I think um, uh, Zap will work on a Mac, while Fiddler, I think, still requires like you would install Mono, Microsoft Mono, and stuff to make it work. Um, or you can install things like the community uh, version of Burp Suite, which is a it's a proxy as well. It's a man-in-the-middle proxy, and basically will intercept your HTTP requests, and you can see how things are coming across and tinker with them. So I think actually getting involved with those tools, getting hands-on installing these these projects like like JuShop and uh, DVWA, seeing how these attacks actually happen in an application will help you learn how to mitigate against them. So I, it, nothing nothing beats actually getting hands-on and getting your hands dirty. And then, of course, you can go to sites like Pluralsight. Uh, Troy Hunt does a really great job of talking about web application security, both from a mitigation perspective and also from a testing perspective. So taking a course like that would be a big help. And there's countless books out there that uh, focus on web application testing. So the Web Application uh, Security Handbook, I think it's called, uh, that's one that would be a really good resource for anybody who wants to understand more about web application security. It focuses a little bit more about how do you attack web apps. But again, if you understand how to attack a web app and get a result, you sh it'll help you solve the problems of your web apps. And the other thing I'm going to say is that your web app is comprised of mul typically of multiple parts. Everybody focuses on the front end. That's the easy one. But what about your APIs? Most people forget that APIs are very vulnerable in terms of extracting information out. And so unless you secure them in the right way, that's an issue. Think about all the systems that are connected to your, uh, to your web app. 
We are now looking at mesh networks where and microservices and how do all those things come into play in terms of the overall security um, security posture of your website. And then also think about what is actually connected from my website to my internal networks. So if you have if you have a web server sitting out there and that for some reason gives internal access to a network, how does it what's the implication there? Can somebody jump into your web server and then move laterally into an internal network because you've configured it that way? Think about the intranet sites that you have configured that you might be allowing um, allowing people access to. You know, if you have an external if you have an intranet site that is not blocked off, let's say by VPN, and you just have it as you know, basic web auth authentication, that generally means that that intranet site might have a connection into an internal corporate site because you're letting people come in in some fashion. Think about those implications as well. Oh, I was scared enough before you said all of that. Um, very last question, short answer. <laughs> were you, okay, Do you were you more scared about the potential um, security problems that were out there? Are you, were you more scared before you started or more scared now that you're more educated about all of the different ways that people can get to you? Oh, I'm definitely more scared now. Okay. You know, I lived at a, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, no, we, you know, it's, um, ignorance is bliss. That's the best way to say it. You know, you, you live in a bubble and you're focused on, um, just doing your web app development, you know, you don't, in many cases you forget about security is, is just not a priority. That's the bottom line. I, I readily admit it. I'm oh, sorry. My doggie's barking. I security wasn't a priority. Um, not that I didn't want to be secure. It's just that I, I didn't have that formalized training either. I'm very much like a lot of developers that nobody said, Hey, you got to learn, you got to learn security. You know, um, I think in many cases, I assumed that some of the frameworks that I used provided those security mechanisms for me. And I think that's also something that I, I believe a lot of developers think that the security frameworks and libraries are using provide the mitigations to a lot of these common issues. I would, I would probably take a step back and say, does React or does Dojo or does Vue or do any of these tools really provide the security mitigations that I need when I'm building out a form that accepts um, input from some random person on the internet. And if you can't answer that 100% yes, it provides the security mitigations for it, then you have to take steps to actually um, get to, to kind of fix that. The other part is that as you dig deeper into security and you start seeing where, how many ways a person can poke holes into everything, it actually is very scary. Uh, all you typically hear about is nation state actors. Everybody talks about nation state actors, blah, blah, blah. It's not that they're not a threat. It's that they have better things to do than hack you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you really think about it, the likelihood, you know, unless I'll give you an example, David, unless Mozilla tomorrow uh, was doing something against a nation state. I don't know. Let's, let's say that Mozilla took a very strong stance against something that was going on in some other country, right? And that really upset that country. Could Mozilla see a nation state actor going at them just to see, 
to infiltrate the network to see what they're actually planning, sure. You could, they could try to spearfish you because they know that you are part of Mozilla, you're a remote employee. You might click on this. You might think it's legitimate. They could actually spoof an email and make it look very, very convincing. And you click on it and guess what? Now they have a, a backdoor, probably be a VPN because you're probably using VPN to get into Mozilla's internal network. And then from there, it's just lateral movements throughout just to see what's going on. And that's that's very possible. I don't think the majority of people will have to deal with that. Uh, what I think a lot of people will deal with are you'll get phishing attacks. And those phishing attacks are typically because they want to steal your credentials for things like your bank account or maybe your Gmail account. Or maybe sometimes they just want to take your Instagram because your Instagram has a cool name on it, you know. So... But you, when you start getting into security and you start seeing the possibilities, yeah, it's it's it can certainly be scary. Um, and some people don't want to open their eyes to it. I understand it. Um, sometimes I look back and say, "What did I get myself into?" Yeah. <laughs> so I was in this nice cozy place, and you know now I know too much, uh, and I don't even know uh, I I don't even know a quarter of the th- of the things that are possible because there are people that they scour the dark web. And the things that go on there are a whole different world, basically. I don't scour the dark web, you know. But when you look at the tools that are available to you and they're freely available, it's impressive. It's really impressive. Oh, man. I still remember when my domain got hacked. Uh, That was was very scary. Uh, But now that I'm sufficiently scared to not sleep at night, takeaways, Todd. Wrapping things up here. Um. Ray provided a whole bunch of amazing information, both on sort of the history of JavaScript frameworks and and all of his um, security work. W- what is your key takeaway from from today? Uh, I think my key takeaway is I'm going to echo one of the resources that Ray dropped for us, which is um, the uh, Troy Hunt Hack Yourself First workshops on Pluralsight. Uh, I haven't watched them on Pluralsight. I watched them live, uh, but they are fantastic and well worth the time and effort. Um, so get your, your tinfoil hats, uh, get scared and, uh, and watch some Troy hunt hack yourself first. What about you, David? Well, I'm going to, again, show the Mutual shirt while I talk. Um, it's good see. to show legacy stuff. Hey, it still fits like a glove. Um, let's see here. A couple you of, you know, things. like that old worn glove that you only use on occasion. Yeah. Or maybe I to do the gardening. It's like all, all like torn and stuff, and yeah. doesn't really keep you warm anymore. But like it's there. There's memories. There. Todd, whose yeah. side are you on? Listen, I'm on I'm my side. I... I'm not on anybody's <laughs> side. <clears throat> a couple of things. One, it was really cool to step down memory lane a little bit and talk about the JavaScript frameworks. Um, as I look at it, it's older. It's further back than I thought it was, but I know that it shaped the developer that I became because of the open source, because I learned about community, um, because I use I learned a ton about JavaScript. That was really cool. Um, this, the second takeaway that I have is that I really like talking about privacy and security because it scares the hell out of me. But I think that both you know myself and our listeners and everyone out there needs that scare from time to time. There's the same scare that that I felt when um, Luke Crouch came on to talk about privacy. Um, this is stuff that we really need to think about, not just as software engineers, but you know, just personally. Um, and then the last thing I need to mention and echo is that Ray 
doesn't understand the impact that he had on my life and my career, but it was massive. And I can't understate, like, I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am today without not just that email, but we talked personally and emailed him. Like, I, I can't explain to you how much that means to me. Um, oh, and, and the power of open source and stuff. Um, it was my pleasure to help you, but Cool, thank you. Um, Ray, did you have any takeaways or anything that you just wanna echo um, that we've spoken about over the past hour? You know, the, the one thing I will say is, um, don't forget about the people who actually the, the foundation. Uh, when you, and I'm talking to the viewers who, who are listening to this. There are a lot of people who actually put in a lot of time and effort into JavaScript. Uh, folks like Alex Russell, for example, um, who, you know, he gets a lot of credit for the work he's doing on Google Chrome now, and he does, he's fantastic, but I don't think he gets enough credit for the amount of effort that he put in to making JavaScript great. And so remember the people uh, that were there before you, uh, you may be doing really fantastic work now. You may be a master of JavaScript, but there are a lot of people that were struggling to allow you to be that master that you are now in JavaScript. So don't forget about those folks. Um, I I think also the other takeaway is, you know, security is important. If you're not investing some time in security, uh, th then I, I think you're going to miss an opportunity to really protect your users and build better experiences for them. Uh, if you look every every single day, there's a new breach. Um, a lot of times, there it's as simple as getting a SQL injection. That's that, seriously, it could be as simple as that. And I, I I know that there are people out there who maybe dropped the ball on something, and now they have to look back and say, I was responsible for that. Hopefully, your leadership team will you know will treat it the way it should be that it's a simple mistake, but also, it's hard for, I think, people to live with mistakes in general, but when they're very big mistakes, that's when it becomes even more challenging. And security, you don't take it seriously, it could lead to very big mistakes. So take the time to learn. Take the time to investigate a little bit. It doesn't mean you have to be a security expert, but make sure that you have that foundational, uh, those foundational skills that are going to make you a better software developer. Go to OWASP, you know, look at some videos, read some books, and just make sure you understand how certain security techniques can impact the way that you write uh, your code. Um, and I think lastly, everybody should have a back scratcher. This is my favorite back scratcher, look at that. So you go like this and you go like that. And you, oh, right there. Dude, you are oh. getting old. We are, oh. oh man, oh man. This is great. Oh, that was great. Oh, that looks, that looks amazing. That uh, ordering on Amazon right now. And, and uh, look at those teeth. And look at the hearts. It has hearts and everything. Look at it's it. like a full-on bear claw. It is. I love is. that. Look at that. Yeah, so it extends out. It's the best thing in the world. You got to have that. Uh, definitely time for the outro, Todd. Let's hit it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hold on. Let me quick order an Amazon back scratcher. <laughs> All right. First, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a fantastic episode. Uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. No, no problem. Thanks for having me. How can people follow up with you if they want to learn more? Uh, I think Twitter is going to be the best way. And you can follow me at Ray Bango, and that's R-E-Y-B-A-N-G-O. Awesome. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. uh, until next time, uh, thank you so much. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new show. Uh, until then, I'm Todd Gardner. I'm David Walsh.
Mutuals for the win. The Script and Style Show is recorded and produced by David Walsh and Todd Gardner. We'll see you next time on Script and Style.